Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through 39. We continue our verse-by-verse exposition of the gospel according to Luke. Last week, we saw the call of Levi, or Matthew, as many know, the tax collector, as Christ calls him from his tax booth to become his disciple, eventually an apostle of one of his. This tax collector, this most hated person in society, Christ goes and makes him his own. And Levi, in incredible celebration, throws a banquet at his house. And there the Lord goes and he eats with them. And and Levi calls the only people who are going to be his friends, and that are other tax collectors. And they come eat and they are feasting with Christ. This incredible picture of fellowship and love that is marked by this culture. And the, the Pharisees see this and they are absolutely stunned. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus makes very clear, the physician did not come for the healthy, but the sick. He came for sinners. And this is precisely what He is doing here. He is doing what He came to do, which was to transform the lives of sinners, making them out, taking them from being outcast to bring them to the table of fellowship with God Himself. In our text today, there's no break in the scene. It's the same scene. These Pharisees are still going back and forth with Jesus. He's just called Himself the physician. He's just called Himself the one who is going to bring uh, sinners to repentance and make them righteous. And rather than being like, oh, okay, they deflect. In the first part of this scene, they were angry about who Jesus was eating with. In this scene, they're going to be mad that he's eating at all, as we see in Luke chapter 5. So if you stand with me for the reading of the word, Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through 39. We'll close out the chapter this morning. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment. And puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine... Desires new, for he says, the old is good. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. You may be seated. What is happening before our eyes? What is going on? That's the question that lied on the heart of every person who beheld this Jesus, both disciple and opponent. What is going on with this Jesus? 
He cast out demons with the power of His Word. Everything He speaks come with, comes with an authority that has never been heard by men. He heals the sick and the lame. He cleanses lepers by His own authority while never becoming unclean Himself. He claims to have authority to forgive sins. He says He's the Son of Man. He calls fishermen and tax collectors, not scholars, to be His followers. He shares the table with sinners, and yet they always come out different than when they began. What's going on? What is happening? Who is this Jesus? And what is He doing? What's He doing? Everywhere this man goes, He makes statements that no mere man should make. And He performs actions that no mere man could do. What is going on with this Jesus? Everything Jesus does and says undermines the expectations of so many. Everything He does seems to be turning the old ways on their head. Literally turning the world upside down. Something new has come with this Jesus. And those who are clinging to the old ways were watching it burst all around them. In the Gospel according to John, John writes with the purpose of declaring that Jesus was God tabernacling in the flesh among His people in order to give them eternal life. That's John's purpose when writing his Gospel. And John, unlike the other Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, arranges his Gospel in a very unique way. In the first 11 chapters, he gives what's, what's called the Book of Signs which is organized around seven signs that declare that Jesus is God in the flesh who has brought salvation for His lost sheep. That's what those signs serve to do. They serve to declare that Jesus is is God so that you might believe in Him. That's John's whole purpose. And in order to understand what Jesus is teaching us today in Luke... I think it would help us to briefly look at the very first sign that John gives that declares that Jesus is God in the flesh bringing salvation to His people. The very first sign of the seven. Many of you know the story very well. Jesus and His disciples were invited to a wedding at Cana. And we know the story. The wine runs out. And Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and says, Hey, they're out of wine. She didn't even ask him to. She said they're out of wine. Which is fascinating to me. Like, did she just, has he done this before maybe? Has she seen this? They're out of wine. If they're out of the wine, right, that means the celebration is going to be coming to an end very soon. It's important to understand that wedding feast in the ancient Near East lasted a week. 
They began with the celebration of the betrothal and they end with the celebration of the consummation. So for a week long, the the marriage feast was was celebrated. So they run out. Well, the the party's going to end short. So she comes to him and and she says, they're out of of wine. And Jesus says, what does that got to do with me? My time has not yet come. but, But actually, Jesus sees this as the opportunity to declare that indeed his time has come. He sees... And he chooses to act and perform a miracle that will serve to actually demonstrate precisely what he has brought in his coming. We'll pick up here in the story of John chapter 2, verse 6 to 11. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now became wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then they give them the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, there's some important details in this fascinating scene at the wedding at Cana that we need to to grasp in order to understand the parable that Jesus gives us in Luke. First, it's at a wedding feast. The very first place we find Jesus serving and doing a ministry in the Gospel according to John is at a wedding feast. Okay, interesting. We see that the old wine has literally come to an end. It's finished. And in order to make the celebration better, Jesus miraculously provides new wine, better wine, to make the celebration more joyful than it already was. He turns jars of water, which for for purification into wine for celebration. Okay? And everyone's and to everyone's surprise, the new wine at the end is better than the old wine at the beginning. Because see in these days what you would do is you'd get everyone a little tipsy out front and then give them the watered down bad stuff at the end. You just in order to to make it last longer, you start diluting it. With more and more water. So it tastes extra bad near the end. You basically just get, you know, skim wine at the end there. You know, watered down juice at that point. So what's going on? The wine is so much better at the end that the master of the feast, basically the person who's throwing the party, the celebration, he comes to the bridegroom 
whose the job of the bridegroom was to provide the means for the feast. The bridegroom is the one who brings the wine. The bridegroom is the one who brings the food for everyone to celebrate his wedding. And so the master of the feast goes to whom in order to praise him for the new wine? He goes to the bridegroom. So the story ends with the bridegroom getting all the praise for bringing the best wine last. My friend, Jesus was not performing mere parlor tricks when He turned the water into wine. Every miracle He performed was for the purpose of revealing both who He was and what He came to do and establish. Jesus' first miracle was providing new wine for a wedding banquet where the bridegroom would get the praise for saving the best for last because that's precisely what Jesus was doing in the history of redemption. The bridegroom had come to initiate a betrothal celebration, bringing new wine for all to feast upon the glories that the bridegroom had come. A bride was being betrothed and it will be celebrated in consummation later to come. That is exactly what these verses are about today in Luke. What Jesus teaches in parable today, He did in miracle in John. And that's exactly what the main point of this text is today. Here's the main point of Luke 5, 33-39. Jesus, our eternal bridegroom, has inaugurated His new covenant kingdom and brought with it new and remarkable realities that His betrothed and waiting bride must now fully embrace. That is the essence of what Jesus teaches us today. There are three main things that Jesus wants to teach these Pharisees and all of us here through this interaction. And the first thing that He teaches us is found in verse 33 and 34 and it's this. Jesus teaches us about the satisfied soul that comes with the bridegroom's presence. He teaches us about the satisfied soul that comes with the bridegroom's presence. We see this in verse 33 and 34. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Once again, they were just complaining about who he's eating with. Now they're complaining that he's eating it all. And we laugh and we joke, but here's the truth, brothers and sisters. The hardened heart will always find reason to deflect its need to surrender to Christ. The hardened heart will always find a reason to keep pushing it off. To keep punting the ball down the field. Even going to... I mean, literally, he just said, I've come to bring sinners and make them righteous. To heal them. And the best thing they got now is fasting? Have you ever had that? Have you ever been talking with someone? 
And you're talking to them about the glories of the salvation that comes in Christ alone. That there's nothing that any man can do to to earn it. And that there's this, this yearning in the life of every person in the world that longs for forgiveness, for reconciliation. And you can see they're locking in, but immediately their heart goes to something like, well, 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 where's the ark at? And I'm not saying that stuff's not important or real or anything. What I'm saying is, is that's deflection. That's let's punt this down. Let me try to find as many hurdles as I can to run away from the fact that I need to absolutely surrender to this Jesus. That's the hardened heart at work. That's what we see so clearly with the Pharisees. They, they say, listen, our disciples fast. Hey, even John the Baptist, the guy who's championing you, they fast, his disciples. So why are your disciples here feasting, eating and drinking? Why are they feasting while we are fasting? This question may seem out of place, but we need to understand why they are asking this. It's very important For us to understand why are they asking this and what was the purpose of fasting in the Old Covenant? You see, fasting in the Old Covenant was equated with a season of weeping and mourning. It was an expression of brokenheartedness, desperation, usually over personal sin or corporate sin over some kind of danger that the nation of Israel was facing, or a longing for some deep blessing to finally come for them. It was something you did when things were not going the way you wanted them to. It was marked by sackcloth and ashes. Deep contrition, brokenness, Mourning, yearning for deliverance, yearning for redemption, yearning to have your enemies finally removed. In Deuteronomy 9 and 10, you've got Moses fasting over Israel's sin. In 2 Samuel, you have David fasting over his own sin and mourning over his dying son. In 2 Chronicles 20, you have Jehoshaphat fasting when Israel is surrounded by three armies and they're facing utter doom. These are the kind of situations you fast for in the Old Covenant. Fasting continued as a practice and became extremely important during what we call the intertestamental period. That, that 400 years between Malachi and the coming of Christ. right? Where in that period, this growing expectation and longing for the Messiah ramps way up as Rome comes and takes oppression over Israel. Takes power over Israel. In order to pray and fast for national cleansing and the coming of the Messiah, the religious leaders of Israel made um, Monday and Thursday to be national days of fasting. So the Israelist time would fast on Mondays and Thursdays in preparation for the, the Messiah and in prayer for national cleansing. Which tells us that likely the day that this feast is happening is on either a Monday or a Thursday, one of those fast days, which is why they're asking, wait, why are they eating? 
The argument was we must fast so that the Lord will see our brokenness in order to send the Messiah and finally cleanse it. Cleanse us excuse me, from these foreign oppressors. This is why the disciples of the Pharisees fasted and it's why the disciples of John the Baptist had fasted. They were praying and fasting for the Messiah to come. And so these Pharisees are saying to Jesus, why are your disciples feasting rather than fasting on this day? Don't you know that we should be preparing and praying for the Messiah? That's what they're saying. And what Jesus said to them would have been utterly shocking to their ears. You can't mourn at a wedding fast, a wedding feast, excuse me. You can't mourn and be sad and broken while the bridegroom is with you. You can't fast at a wedding feast. This is a celebration. There's no mourning here. Even one of the first century rabbis taught this. He said that individuals should forego, quote, any acts of worship that would lessen their joy while a wedding celebration was underway, end quote. So during a time of a wedding celebration, all actions of, of worship that were done are, are applied by man at this point, by the traditions of the Pharisees, were to be basically put on hold while the celebration was happening. Anything that would lessen your joy in the bridegroom's presence needs to go during the wedding feast. Because to be mourning or broken during a wedding feast was a dishonor to the wedding party. It was a dishonor to the bridegroom who has brought all of these things so that you'll celebrate. He's brought the wine and the food so that you'll celebrate, not mourn. So to be mourning or broken and sad and sackcloth and ashes would have been a great dishonor to the bridegroom in this culture. And Jesus is calling them on that. But what is he talking about? Where's the wedding feast? And who is the bridegroom? What Jesus is saying about himself here must be fully understood. Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. And this bringing of sinners to the table of fellowship, that's the wedding feast. Because this is my bride. This is my bride. And when Jesus said He was the bridegroom, those Pharisees would have had no doubt what He meant. When He says, I'm the bridegroom, what Jesus was saying was abundantly clear. I'm the God of Israel. Who's the bridegroom in the Old Covenant? God is. Yahweh is. Listen to these texts. Isaiah 62.5 As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. uh, Yahweh speaking in covenantal love over Israel. When I, the Lord, passed by you, Israel, again I saw you. Behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And one more. Israel had been an adulterous bride. So the Lord raises up a prophet named Hosea. And actually, through his very life, gives a parable of what he's going to do one day when he comes to redeem the bride for himself. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. I, that is the Lord, will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. That word know is not cognitive. No, it's yada. It's intimate. Adam knew his wife Eve. It is intimate, covenantal, consummating, knowing. I know you with intimate love. This is wedding language. And the Lord says, Yahweh says, I will be your bridegroom. So if they had ears to hear it, they would hear it that Jesus is telling those there and us today that Yahweh, the one who betrothed Israel to himself in covenant love, had come in Jesus. Jesus was Yahweh in the flesh. The bridegroom of Israel had come to betroth his bride. Countless generations had fasted, wept, and mourned that they might be redeemed and spared by the bridegroom. And he was now there. And there was no need while he's there to mourn and weep in sackcloth and ashes. You can't fast in the presence of the bridegroom. You can only celebrate. You can only rejoice. The king had come. He was gathering sinners as his bride, redeeming her to himself, covenantally joining them to him forever. The wedding banquet was at hand. The bridegroom had come and thus the time of weeping was over. It was time to celebrate. It was time to rejoice. And even John the Baptist knew this and told his disciples this. In John chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, John the Baptist says these words to his disciples. I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him, hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John's saying, I'm the friend of the bridegroom who has helped invite his bride to come. 
And I see that He's come and that He's gathering and betrothing His bride. Therefore, my joy is complete. There's no more time for me to weep and fast anymore. Because everything I yearned for has come in Him. The bridegroom has come and thus my joy is complete. It's not time to fast and yearn for the bridegroom because He's fully in their presence. Your heart cannot be broken in the midst of Jesus' presence. Instead, they are to be completely satisfied and full of joy, not sorrow. Jesus' disciples were not fasting because it was time to feast. And their feasting declared the presence of God is with us. The bridegroom is with us. Fasting is a declaration that something's out of place. And when you've tasted the presence of Christ, the eternal bridegroom who has betrothed you to Himself for glory, your soul will be completely satisfied. Completely satisfied. Jesus said, I came to give you joy. To joy I came to give you. Joy. Is that what your life is marked by? Is it marked by relentless joy in the presence of the bridegroom? As long as Jesus was with them, their souls were satisfied, He was saying. They can't fast. They can't mourn and weep when I am with them. They were satisfied in the bridegroom's presence. Is that true for you? Are you completely satisfied by the bridegroom's presence? Jonathan Edwards said, quote, He who has Christ has all he needs and needs no more. End quote. Complete satisfaction. Complete joy. Complete contentment. Why? Because my bridegroom's come. He has come. And I will celebrate it. As long as they had Jesus with them, there was no need to fast. But Jesus then says something remarkable that would have even shocked His own disciples. Secondly, Jesus teaches us about the longing soul that comes from the bridegroom's absence. He teaches us about the longing soul that comes from the bridegroom's absence. We see this in verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Here, Jesus gives us the first glimpse that something terrible is going to happen. That something's going to happen that nobody expected. When He says, I'll be taken away. The bridegroom will be taken away. The, 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 the word there, aparthi, it denotes an act of violence. It, it literally means snatched away. I'll be ripped away from them. And then, they will fast. Now, there are some that argue that this idea of being taken away is referring only to the three days 
between crucifixion and resurrection. And indeed, that was a day of weeping. Indeed, those, day, those were days of absolute brokenness, sackcloth and ash mourning for the disciples. No doubt about it. But I think that this means more than just those three days. I believe that this marks the entirety of the period that He is not physically present with us. There are several reasons I believe that. First of all, is that we find in multiple times throughout the New Testament, the early church fasting. The church was fasting in Acts chapter 13, Acts 14, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 11. They were fasting. They were fasting. We find the church fasting. We find the, the early church in the first cent- or excuse me, the beginning of the second century. They continued on with fast days. We read in the Didache, which is one of the earliest uh, books on church practice that we have written about 106 A.D., give or take. The Didache says that we, talking to the church that it was written to, we will fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, not like the hypocrites. So what they're talking about is they're talking about unbelieving Jews. We're not going to do it on Monday and Thursday. We'll do it on Wednesday and Friday. Which is why you still see aspects of like eating only fish on Fridays and certain things in certain different traditions and cultures. Uh, but that's where that idea comes from. We will fast on Wednesday and Fridays, not like the hypocrites who do it on Monday and Thursday. So fasting continues in the apostolic church. It continues on in the early church. So we see it when it comes to the, the just evidence of practice that the church saw the need to continue practicing after Christ's resurrection and ascension. But I actually believe that there is a scriptural proof or evidence that declares that what Jesus is referring to about His taken away is to mark the entire what we call the inter-advental age, the period between first coming and second coming, that it will mark that entire period until He returns to drink with us and feast with us forever. And I get that from Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching about His second coming. And in Matthew 25, verse 6, this is how He refers to Himself in that coming. Matthew 25, 6, At midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet Him. So Jesus sees the return of the bridegroom, not primarily with His resurrection, but with His second coming. And so His first coming marks part one of the wedding feast, betrothal. Second coming marks close of wedding feast, which is consummation. Well, what does this middle part conclude? This is invitation. Do you not know the the parable where Jesus says, I sent out my, my, my servants to go and invite all to come to the wedding feast. This is where it is. This is the season of invitation. Come to the wedding feast. Come and receive the new wine of Christ. Come and behold it. And that's what this period marks. It marks the period of invitation. He came to betroth His bride in life, death, and resurrection first coming. And He will return to consummate and gather her in glory when He returns to end the wedding feast. But now is the time of invitation. Come to the wedding feast. Come and eat. Come and drink. Your bridegroom has come. And He is coming back. That is what this period is all about. 
So think that's the period. And so Jesus saying that during this period of invitation, while the bridegroom is not physically present with us, there will be times and periods of fasting for his disciples. But this fasting will be markedly different from the old. Markedly different. And, and, and if you want to hear a series on fasting, I did about like a year and a half ago. I did an entire series on Christian fasting. And I'd love to, you can go find that on our sermon audio. But, but fasting in the new covenant has got to be different from the old. Because new covenant fasting has actually tasted the joy and the satisfaction of the presence and perfect work of Jesus. It's not yearning for something that hasn't come. It's celebrating what already has come and will be completed when come again. So this fasting is not primarily marked by mourning and weeping. It's marked by joy and satisfaction. And God, through the prophet Zechariah, actually declared that fasting would change whenever he would come to restore his people. In Zechariah chapter 8, God is declaring to Zechariah, I will come and restore Judah and gather the nations to myself. And this is what he says about how fasting will change when he does that. Zechariah 8 verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the last of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Zechariah 8 is all about the day when the Lord will come to gather and restore His own. And He says one of the things that's going to be different is that your fasting will not be weeping and mourning. It will be joy and celebration and delight. Something will happen. What's happened? We now know the bridegroom's presence. That's the difference. This fasting will be a joyful declaration of our satisfaction in Christ alone. Which is why Jesus says when you fast, he's talking to his disciples, don't go around with a disheveled look. Don't go around making yourself look ugly and making yourself look tired. Oh, I've been fasting for two days and I'm just, you know, I'm trying to take care of myself. Don't look. Clean yourself up. Why? Because your fasting isn't like the old. It's not like the hypocrites. Your fasting is markedly different. It is one of joy and satisfaction and delight that I have all I need in Him. All I need in Him. You're fasting from a place of delight. Because in spite of our complete satisfaction in Christ, our fasting also marks a desperate longing for His return. It is, a, it is a fast that is marked by satisfaction, yet yearning. Contentment, yet craving. That is what our worship is in the new covenant. It is satisfied, yet longing. It is content, yet craving. That's what new covenant worship is all about. I have everything I need in Christ and I can't wait for more. I can't wait for more. That's what new covenant worship is. Especially our fasting. Through the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus is still with us. He did not leave us as orphans. John 14. And so we still have the bridegroom's presence with us in a way. And we love it and we're satisfied by it. But we know it's still not the way it will be. We still know there's something so much more what it will be to walk and behold his face in the day to come, in the age to come. And the New Testament teaches this. 2 Corinthians 5.8 We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.23 To depart and be with Christ is far better, Paul says. So yes, he was satisfied. Yes, he was content to live as Christ. But to die is gain. It's better. Why? Because I want to be with him. I want to be right there in his presence. So I'm satisfied. But yo, I want more. I want more of Christ. So in this age, right now, this period of invitation, there is a, 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 an ache. There should be. There should be an ache inside every Christian that our bridegroom is not here as fully and intimately and as powerfully and as gloriously as we want him to be. We long to be at home in the fullness of his glory. And so Christian fasting and worship in general flows first and foremost out of a homesickness for heaven. Our worship and our fasting flows out of a homesickness for heaven. I want to be home. I want to be home with my King forever. It's that yearning that John closes Revelation by saying, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come. In joyful anticipation and longing for the coming of Jesus, we choose to fast at given times as Christians. But when should we fast? That's the question. When should you, when should you fast? Because Jesus tells us the heart behind fasting, but He gives no mandate of when we should fast. You don't have to do it certain days. So, so the question is, is, when should we fast, both individually perhaps as, and corporately? Well, I, I'll, I'll say this. This is the primary driver that should lead to your fasting if you should choose to fast. You should fast. We should fast when we feel our hearts being pulled away from our beloved by the temptations of this world. That's when you should fast. When you feel your heart being pulled away by other lovers. In warfare... When you seek to siege a fortified city, what do you do? You set up a blockade. And that blockade keeps all food and supplies from going into the city. If you do it effectively enough, what does it do? It starves out the city into complete surrender. That's what fasting does. That's precisely what, why Christians fast in the absence of their bridegroom. Because it cuts off any other source of temporal satisfaction. It cuts off any other source and it starves the flesh of its vain demands so that it can further press my heart into complete surrender that all I need is Christ alone. It's starving out. It's sieging this city that wants to love other things and be satisfied by other things and says, all you need is Christ. And until you surrender to that, you're going to keep living off things that are poisoning you. 
You're going to keep going after other lovers instead of your one true beloved who has set his heart on you and you alone, his bride. When we feel ourselves being lured away after other lovers who will only lead to our pain, new covenant fasting and worship read our, redirects our hearts to the only one who can satisfy us forever. It surrenders our heart to exactly the words we read of Asaph this morning. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? Kill everything else that I'm going after. There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Starve it out, Christ. Starve my soul of everything that would pull it away from you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's new covenant worship. That's new covenant fasting. That is what drives us to that place of worship. It's to get that heart inside of us. There's nothing I desire but you. And any other satisfaction. Too much television, too much food, whatever it is that I need to choke off from this city to surrender, it's got to go for a season. That's fasting. Because I want nothing pulling my heart away from my bridegroom who died for me. As Christians, we have tasted the powers of the age to come. And our fasting in Christ is not because we're hungry for something that we have not experienced. No, we fast because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying that we yearn to get as much of it as we can possible. It's not that we are wanting something we've never had. It's it's because we want all that we already have in Christ and more of it. I'm not looking for new experiences. I just want more of Christ. I just want more of Him. The newness of new covenant fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we've never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we've tasted it so wonderfully by His Spirit that we cannot but long for the bridegroom's return where we will drink in the fullness of His presence forever. Because just, at like, just like at that wedding feast, the last wine will be better than the first. And so what Jesus is teaching here is that His new covenant people will constantly live in this remarkable paradigm of being both completely satisfied and yet desperately longing for more. And that's how we live as exiles in this world. Completely content in the wilderness, yet longing for the eternal promised land. That's how we live as new covenant people of Christ. The new has come with Christ, and unless hearts are made new to receive it, they will only burst or rip away from the glories that have come with Jesus. And that's precisely the heart of the parable that He now gives. And in this parable, Jesus teaches us this. Third, Jesus teaches us about the new covenant realities that His people must now fully embrace. New covenant realities that His people must fully embrace. Verse 36 and 39. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. 
Jesus uses two pictures here in this parable. A picture of fabric, garments, and wineskins. That would have been completely understood by his audience. They, they knew exactly what he was saying here. Sometimes we don't. And I have used, heard this text used very perverted ways. With the garment or fabric, he's talking about how you can't tear a new garment and take a piece of it and just try to sew it on an old one. That would be silly. Why would you destroy the new garment? And secondly, we, we have a lot of clothes today that are, you know, they come chemically washed and prepared. But in these days, fabric with wear and wash, it shrinks rapidly, right? Like it massively shifts and changes with weather and things like that. So if you try to take a new cloth or a new piece of garment and sew it onto an old one, what's going to happen is it's war. It's going to rip away. It's going to shrink and rip away. It won't last. And now you've just led, you're left with two destroyed things. You've got a ripped up old garment and a tore up new one. You can't do that. It would be foolish to try to destroy the new and attach it to the old. It will rip away. And now you've just got two destroyed dresses. And with the wineskins, you can't just take new wine and put it into an old wineskin. Why? Because old wineskins have lost their elasticity. They can't expand anymore. And what happens with new wine? It ferments. And when it ferments, it gives off gases that expand. And so as the wine expands and the ferment expands, what's going to happen to those old wineskins that's lost their elasticity? They're going to rupture. They've got no room to grow. So they're going to rupture. And now you've lost both the new wine and the old wineskins. Once again, you're left with two destroyed realities. The old and the new are destroyed. Instead, you have to put new wine in new wine skin, which still has its flexibility, its elasticity. So as it expands, the new wine skin will expand with it and be able to contain it and preserve it. Now, what is this all about? Because like I said, this has been perverted in a lot of ways. And if anybody uses this text to take your eyes off and put it on anything other than what Jesus has brought, it's already wrong. It's all about Jesus. The text is all about Christ. Jesus was making clear that what you Pharisees keep objecting over are simply the realities that the new covenant kingdom has come. And they do not fit in your old covenant ways. They won't fit in your old covenant ways. They can't fit in your old covenant ways. Hear me out, brothers and sisters. The reason that they could not fit in the old covenant ways is because they were never meant to. They were never meant to. It was called the new covenant for a reason. It was new. Because it was going to be different from the old. Different. That's why it's new. In order for Jesus to do what was necessary to reconcile a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation back to God, He would have to bring forth realities that the Old Covenant pointed to but could not accomplish. Which is why God declared through the prophet Jeremiah 31, 31-34 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Let's stop right there. That will be different from the covenant that I made with their fathers. Not another administration of it. Totally new one. Brand new covenant. This is no patch job on the old. It's brand new in its entirety. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. New wine within them. And I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Why? Because you've known the bridegroom's presence. You know him. He's there. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will I'll remember their sin no more. That's exactly what this whole, this whole thing started off with. I have come to call sinners to repentance. That's what this whole feast has started over. And this is the essence of it. The new has come. Jesus was not saying in this parable the old was bad. He never once says the old bad. He doesn't say anything bad about old wineskins. doesn't say anything bad about the old garment. He was simply saying the new has come. And it's different. It's different than the old. And the old can't contain it because it was never meant to. The old wine had run its race. It was now fully drunk up in the coming of the Messiah. All the wine that was left in the old was drunk up the day Jesus came to to the earth. So to continue to look for old covenant realities, all you're going to find is empty stream beds that walk you directly to the ocean of Christ. Because there's no water left in them. He drank it all up in him. So I said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. To drink it up in all of its fullness. Just like the wine at the wedding at Cana, the new wine and all its glorious realities had come because the old wine was drunk up. It was drunk up the moment He came to do what He came to do. Jesus is telling them, you can't take a little bit of Me and continue on your old ways. The Messiah did not come to patch the old. He came to bring the new. He came to bring the new. The old pointed to me. And the new is the reality that I have come. And I've come to do what the old just couldn't do. What it never was meant to do. The Pharisees just wanted the Messiah to come and patch up their old ways. That's all they want to do. Keep the old and just bring the Messiah. We want all the old stuff, but not this stuff about gathering in the nations and all that stuff. We just want to be our own little theocracy, ruling over everyone. They wanted the messianic realities of the new covenant to remain in the old covenant skins, not understanding that the old covenant was never meant to contain those new realities. It couldn't. 
The new covenant was going to expand beyond the old covenant's abilities. Gathering in those the old covenant could not, including the lame, the leper, and the outcast. It would expand beyond what the old could hold. The old was good to maintain a single nation which would be used to bring forth the Messiah. But it couldn't expand to the globe the way the new has. The new wineskin must expand to include every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so the new had to come to do it. It was precisely this new wine expansion that was causing the Pharisees to burst in outrage. Because they couldn't contain its expansion. They couldn't contain that it would include lame lepers and tax collectors. They couldn't contain it. Which is exactly why Jesus gave the proverb he does in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. You won't even give it a shot because you're so satisfied with the old. In other words, you're so satisfied with the old ways, you've got no desire with the new. Your heart is content with what you have, and therefore you're missing out on what you need. It's content with what you have, so it's missing out on what you need. They were more satisfied with the promises of the Messiah than they were the presence of Him. They were more passionate about the roadside than they were the destination. Look at what the sign says. Yeah, look at the destination. That's what the old covenant was. A constant arrow that says, this is what it will be. This is what it will look like. This is what He will do. And now that He's there, they don't want any of it. They enjoy the map, not the destination. Unfortunately, as we will continue to see, the Pharisees' taste for the old would continue to cause them to turn their nose up to the new. But this could not be so for Christ's people. In order to partake of Him, they have to fully embrace the new. You have to embrace the new covenant realities of Christ and everything that's come with Him. They had to accept that He was turning the world upside down. And not only accept it, but delight in it, rejoice over it, and join in it. This text is so abused by pastors. I've heard it used this way. You know, if you're not into our new ways, you're you're an old wineskin. If you don't get along with our new plan, our new system, our new program, you know, the Lord's given us a new, fresh revelation and you need new wineskins to hear it. No, He isn't. He gave all the revelation He needed in Christ. And that revelation is finished and final. And it is all that we will ever need. And there's no wineskins in this world that will be enough to contain it. The glorious realities of what Christ brought in His coming and what He will do in a second. This text is about the glorious new realities that came with Christ, not anybody else. And the text is reality that you either embrace all of Him or you get none of Him. You embrace all of the fact that the new has come or you get none of Him. You can't add a little bit of Jesus to your old way of living. It will rip away or it will burst. And both will be destroyed. You don't get to add a little bit of Jesus to your life. Jesus is not here to patch up your old way of living. He's here to give you brand new life. And you either drink it all or you stay away. Because you don't get to have a patchwork Christianity. 
The streams of the old covenant had now run fully into the glorious ocean of the new covenant with Christ coming. He's making clear in his actions and his words that a new age has dawned. And to make clear that he will now go after the Pharisees' most precious old covenant reality. He's going to go after the Sabbath and show something brand new has come. And it will mark the stage that sets the foreshadow of the future. And we'll look at that next week. Some closing takeaways here, just real fastly, briefly, that we get from this text. First, Jesus is our bridegroom. He has betrothed you to Himself, Christian. When you receive the Holy Spirit, see it almost as an engagement ring. That He has given you the absolute declaration that He will come to consummate what He started. He will complete what He has began. He loves you with an everlasting love. And just as He said to the disciples in the garden, He will love you to the end. He will love you and never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is constantly pursuing you. Constantly praying for you. Interceding for you. And He has brought the best wine for His people. And just like the wedding at Canaan, He alone gets the praise. He alone gets the glory. Because He has brought it. We, our relationship with Christ is marked, our worship towards Him is marked by both a complete satisfaction and a desperate longing for more of Him, for Jesus. We are so immensely satisfied in what I have in Christ. So immensely content in everything that I have in Jesus. Yet, I so want to see Him. I so want more of Him. I so cannot wait to the day that I walk with Him in eternal paradise, never to face death again, never to feel sorrow or pain or suffering again. To only know God and God alone. I long for that and I hope you do. I long for the consummation of this wedding feast. But I am satisfied now. I am satisfied and I will stay satisfied as long as I am in the wilderness. Looking forward to the day He carries me into the promised land. So our relationship to Christ as our bridegroom is one of complete satisfaction and yet desperate longing. And I just want to tie this directly to your marriages today. That's how your marriage should be. Your marriage should be marked by complete satisfaction in your spouse. Yet desperate longing for more. Desperate pursuit. Desperate intimacy. Desperate desperate yearning. For how can I love you more? How can I want you more? How can I serve you more? Look at how Christ loves His bride. Look at how we are to love our bridegroom. And do that in your own marriages. Look to Him. Be satisfied in your partner. But yearn and long for more intimacy. And more satisfaction. See that today in your marriages. Thirdly, there's no such thing as patchwork or partial Christianity. You can't add the gospel to man-made religion. You don't get to have this new age humanistic pragmatism that has marked Christianity and just tap Jesus onto it. It'll rip away. It'll rip away. You can't say, I'm going to continue to live my life and just add a little Jesus into it. He won't do it. 
And we wonder why the gospel is so unheard of in churches today. It's because it's been destroyed and the wineskins have been ruptured and garments have been torn because we've tried to create a patchwork Christianity which says you can have the old parts of you you love and the best parts of Jesus you want. Not realizing it's all or nothing. It's all of Christ or it's none of Christ. The fight of faith to fight to give it all to Christ to surrender all to him and say I want all of your realities in me give me the heart to drink it in give me the spirit and the soul to take in all of the glories of your coming and what you're doing for us Christ that I may drink it all in so that when people see me they see nothing old left over they just see brand new in Christ So, when you fast, and there are seasons you should fast. Maybe this sermon is the season that's called you to that. When you fast, when you worship, feast on Christ. When you fast, feast on Christ. Because you can never get too much of Him. Or you can never go to Him too often. Fast in seasons where sin has beset you. Fast in seasons where your desire for evangelism has waned. It's time to invite to the banquet. Fast when you find yourself giving improper amounts of time to worldly things. Starve out the cravings for the world and feast on the glories of Christ found in His Word. Setting your heart and your eyes upon the day when He returns to consummate you in glory. Because we know that when He returns... The last wine will be better than the first. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will celebrate the fact that our bridegroom will never be taken away again. He'll never be taken away again. So when you worship, when you fast, declare to the Lord, take over, lover of my soul. Take control of me. I surrender all. There's nothing I want more than You. You must fill me, Lord. Give me the knowledge and the desire and the taste buds for nothing more than the new realities that have come with You. Cast off all the old that I can long for nothing more than You. My friends, the new has come in Christ. The bridegroom has come and he's coming back. And for that, we wait. Perfectly content, yet constantly craving for more of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for Jesus. Jesus, help us see in our lives where we have tried to patch you in. Where we've just tried to add you on to old ways of thinking or doing. And Lord, calls us to just absolutely throw that away. Throw that aside and realize that it's all or you or none of you. Christ, completely take over us. Fill us with the glories of your Spirit. Fill us with the glorious realities that you have given us as your people. A peace like no other. A joy like no other. Lord, you are our bridegroom. You have come to redeem your bride. And you perfectly did so at Calvary. 
And yet you have gone off to establish the fullness of your kingdom to ensure that all of your bride, the fullness of her, is brought into consummation. So God, help us be those who invite to the feast. Give us a a yearning and a longing to see this feast as big and as full, just like Levi did. Inviting all that we can to come to behold Christ. God, give us an immense and utter satisfaction in Jesus. That we wouldn't want anything else, just Him and Him alone. That You would cut off our desires for vain things and give us a heart for You alone. Oh, Jesus, take over. Take over all of us. Take over Your people. Consume us with Your glory. That we may both long for You forever while being satisfied in You perfectly right now. Lord, if there's someone here today that has come and You have given them a desire to taste of the new wine that You've brought in Your coming Christ, that You would open their hearts right now and flood the glories of Your salvation into them. That You would make them brand new, that they might hold and expand with the glorious realities of the new wine that comes with Christ. That You would save them this very moment and let them live forever for Your glory. Awaiting for the day that You come to gather us home. Help us, Jesus, to live for You to long for you, to love only you. In your name we pray. Amen.